The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. On this week's programme, a very special guest, a total legend of the wine world, the man who reinvented Rosé, the creator of Whispering Angel, Sacha Lachine, talks to us from his Provence estate, Chateau d'Esclare. And a legend of many lunchtimes, Roger Jones, Michelin starred for 12 years. His restaurant was a favourite haunt of wine lovers. He's retired now, except that, well, he isn't really. Uh, we'll talk about what he's up to and why he featured in the Guinness Book of Records, something I hadn't previously realised before researching the interview. Plus, as always, your recommendations for medal-winning wines and spirits from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. It must surely be the world's most famous rosé wine, Whispering Angel. It feels like its cherubic presence has been with us for decades, but it is actually only 15 years old. The creation of Sacha Lachine after his purchase of Chateau d'Esclin in Provence. From the wine lists of five-star hotels to the wine aisles of Waitrose, uh, such has been its storming success that it's now part of a family of seven wines. So what inspired Sacha Lachine, who was born in Bordeaux, to take on the mantle of rosé revolutionary? Well, I'm glad to say we're about to find out because uh, Sasha joins us now from his estate in Provence. Um, Sasha, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Well, thank you for being here. So uh, what inspired you uh, then to, to do this? Because you're born into what I would regard as a, a form of wine royalty in Bordeaux. Your father, Alexis, uh, built up uh, Chateau Priore Lachine in Margot. Did you have wine in your blood? Well, you know, my, my um, father had uh, Priore Lachine and he had another vineyard called Chateau Lascombe and he actually started in Burgundy. So I grew up with wine cellars that were full and people at the dinner table and wine being served and wine being sold. So I was, let's say, baptized in a barrel somehow. And um, so I've had wine. Um, I think it's the only thing that I've ever known how to do. And I I've been fortunate enough to have touched in a lot of different sort of aspects of all of this. So I was a sommelier for a, for a period of time. I worked in the vineyards, I worked in the cellars, I worked for distributors in the US. I've also worked for retailers and so I sort of had a bit of knowledge, a little bit about the wine industry as, as it's all that I've ever done. And uh, Provence all of a sudden came about as a category, let's say, which was sort of cheap and cheerful and unknown at the time. And um, basically, uh, we saw a future in the category. Rosé Champagne had all of a sudden sort of begun to become quite popular. If you think of 30 years ago, there was no Rosé Champagne. So Rosé Champagne sort of took a little bit of the front. And I think the category of Rosé Champagne helped still Rosé considerably. So you ran uh, the estate you inherited from your father, uh, Priore Lachine, very successfully. And then you decided to sell up in, in Margot and uh, buy an estate in Provence when Provence was 
not really very fashionable. Uh, did people at the time tell you that you were mad? Well, they told me I was off my off my rocker. Yes, they thought I was absolutely crazy to leave Bordeaux and to go to a place like Provence. Problem with Bordeaux is that you know you're jockeying for position and for price. So. I think um, what I had done was maybe put the cherry on the cake in Bordeaux of something that my father had built, and I wanted a new challenge, and uh, I had visited about 32 properties in Provence. I was looking to, to initially sort of make a bit of a difference, and um, Provence Rosé was just starting up. I drank quite a bit of rosé growing up. My father used to vacation a bit on the Côte d'Azur. And bit by bit, um, we started making some rosé actually in Bordeaux at the time, which was Signé rosé more than rosé that's uh, made to be. And um, basically, I just um, thought that there was um, something that was going to happen. And I could feel sort of a mood um, driven by women, obviously, because it's pink and it's pretty in the glass. And it was, as I said, champagne rosé. And English women, probably, that started to put it on the map. They would come back from the south of France and drink something pink bit by bit. And I think that happened also with the Cannes Film Festival and out in Los Angeles and with all of the sort of stars going back to L.A. So bit by bit, the category had a little bit of something happening on top of the fact that obviously we're in an area where lifestyle is um, magnificent. So... Half of it here is lifestyle. The other half is what we've been able to produce and do. And, um, you know, you've got Saint-Tropez on your backyard and you've got the Côte d'Azur on your backyard. So you've got a fantastic clientele. So it was all about making quality. It has changed so much. Um, I fell in love with the region and uh, with, with rosé wine, actually, in the late 1990s. And in those days, you could take along a plastic container to a winery in Ramatuel, and you could fill up five litres of rosé for probably not much more than a euro a litre. And it was fun. It was quite rustic compared to the wines these days. Um, just talk us through how, in your time, uh, 20 years, let's say, in uh, Provence, how those rosé wines have evolved. Well, you know, I think when I arrived here in 2006, basically uh, a hectoliter of rosé was being sold on the market for about 80 euros, and now it's over 300. So I think it's all about quality at the beginning. And what we wanted to do was with Patrick Leon, who you know had unfortunately has passed away and who had uh, worked for Mouton Rothschild for 23 years at Alma Viva and an Opus One in the U.S. And uh, we basically embarked on trying to make Rosé Grand. So to be honest with you, I think if we didn't have the technology that we have today uh, compared to the technology that was around about 30 years ago, cold systems, opticalized sorting machines, nitrogen presses, everything against oxidation, I would say, because the biggest race here is a race against oxidation. I think rosé is probably the most difficult color to make good and the easiest to make average. So I think people have invested more in their vineyards. I think they've invested more in technology. And what we've tried to do is to bring the whole thing up a notch. And I think bit by bit, um, the category is being recognized as real wine. And that's what we embarked to do. 
was to make real wine. And then when Patrick asked me one day, he said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, first of all, we make a product that we want to drink in the event that we can't sell it. So, <laughs> so in any case, it was all about quality. It was all about putting the money into the vineyards at first. It was all about density of the vineyards. We rip vineyards out. We many more vines than the Appalachian requires per hectare. And uh, basically, we've uh, embarked on this barrel fermentation as well in a Burgundian style. We've developed the first sort of individual uh, temperature control system per barrel. So we can vinify one barrel at, at 15 degrees, another one at 12 degrees. So we put all the money into the vineyards and all the money into technology. And what we've come out with is something which has a lot of flavor and taste and elegance and things that are tense, but that uh, also have a bit of depth and some character and some complexity. And so uh, it's been uh, it's been fascinating trying to trying to put all of this together. And I think finally we've come to the point. This last vintage, I think, is what I finally sort of envisioned to do about 15 years ago, quality-wise. It's interesting that you mentioned barrel fermentation there, and you have um, been uh, very experimental with the use of um, oak, because uh, it was uh, maybe when you started, um, there would again be people who would question whether that was wise or not. What, why did you feel that you should be using uh, barrel fermentation and, and oak in that way? Well, if you've drunk, which I'm sure you have, a lot of white burgundies, you you know, that are barrel fermented, um, wood is never supposed to be tasted. It's supposed to just give you an extra layer of complexity and making something longer and that lingers on your palate. And that's what great wine is supposed to do. So I think it was just to be able to pick fruit and to make wine that merited uh, the use of oak, which was lightly toasted, 600 liter barrels, so about twice, two and a half times the size of Bordeaux or Burgundy. And just to give it a little bit of complexity and a little bit of length, just to make it a little grander. And, uh, but, you know, we had to make the first wine before we put it into barrel, sort of interesting as well. So. I think it was a white burgundy sort of uh, belief as far as, you know, what oak is supposed to do because all great white burgundies, as you know, are fermented in oak. And most of the time you can't necessarily taste it. So that's what we embarked on is complexity in the product itself. I imagined uh, before I did my sort of homework before speaking to you that uh, you'd spent sort of most of your life in a vineyard or a cellar. And of course, as you referenced earlier on, you've been a sommelier. Uh, you've worked in so many different aspects of the trade. You've had a, um, a keen uh, experience or a keen eye for retail. Um, and you've worked around sort of marketing and branding. And of course, um, you can see that in the way that the, the wines have been brought to the market. So do you think that um, that is that broader experience is, is really pivotal if you're going to enjoy uh, the success that you have? Well, I think, you know, what you have to understand, obviously, is that these wines at the end of the day need to be sold. And for it to be sold, uh, the key is positioning. So if you position a product that has a certain quality basis in a 
certain packaging because packaging is important. The product is you can't do anything if you don't have the product from the start. Then you have to package. We went to the UK actually to do our packaging because the uh, the Brits are fantastic at anything that has to do with packaging. If you look at Fortnum and Masons or Harrods or those type of things, so forth and so on. And then at the end of the day, distribution also is key. And that was, uh, you know, most important. So um, I think it's been, uh, it's been um, fascinating from the start to be able to put this knowledge that I luckily have together. But the key really was positioning of the product at the price point that sort of seems to hit. And we started with the on-trade because as far as we're concerned, brands are built on the on-trade and then they trickle down to retail. And uh, I decided to start with the U.S. because one, it was a country that I know quite well, that I was educated in and that I did most of my um, commercial and marketing training. And uh, basically, once you succeed, I think, in our business in the U.S., I think it goes to the rest of the world. So we started uh, in Chicago, and that's where I started because it's a cold city and nobody drinks rosé. And um, it's a red wine town with steakhouses and et cetera. And I managed to get rosé on the map there, and I figured if I could make it in Chicago, I could make it in most places. So... We uh, went out and about and traveled the world with our bottle bag and sort of got it out and bit by bit, you know, we made four products at the beginning. It was a champagne marketing approach. So Garus was like Don Perignon and Leclon was like the Brut Imperial. And the original Chateau d'Esclon was sort of like the Brut Non Vintage. And Moet at a while sort of had started something called uh, uh, White Star. And basically, that's what we wanted to do with Whispering. So people move up and down a ladder. There are, there are four different qualities at four different price points. And um, it was just an interesting approach, but that was our approach. So it was a champagne marketing approach. It was a multitude of different products. One helps to sell the other because Don Perignon helps to sell the Brut Non Vintage, and the Brut Non Vintage helps to sell Don Perignon. And obviously, at the beginning, you know, coming out with a bottle of rose that was 1,800 bottles and barrel fermented and retailed in the States for $100 a bottle. You know, everybody thought I was out of my effing mind at the time. So, but in any case, bit by bit, they taste it. The, they, they, uh, the wine itself finally sort of was the one that did all the talking at the end. And bit by bit, we've sort of moved the category along. We've pulled it all up from the bottom up to the median, and it keeps going up. And there are more and more cuvées now that are being done. There's Miraval that does Muse, which is quite extraordinary as well, only sold in Magnums. There's Ut that's just come out with Etoile. There's Gérard Bertrand down in the south that has Clos du Temple, which he claims now is the most expensive rosé in the world. So I think at the end of the day, when you have competition, Competition is healthy, and you're going to grow a category, and that's what we've been doing, and that's what I've tried to do is to get the category moving. As you know, in Bordeaux, the greatest uh, sort of marketing tool of Bordeaux was the commanderie and the fact that the chateaus would get together and go out and travel and so forth. So 
But the quality needs to be in the bottle, and that's what we've been fighting for because you can't export or you can't sell something in 106 countries and not have it in the bottle. And of course, uh, as you said, it's about what's in the bottle. It's the quality. If you don't have that in the first place, then you can't go much further. You may as well Hopefully, pack it up. You got it. exactly. But when I I've been doing um, Van der Provence rosé masterclasses at a, a music festival, a posh festival in. Uh, Hampton Court in Southwest London. And when I mention as part of a story of the transformation of, of the quality of Rosé, and I mention Whispering Angel, and you see uh, people have their happy faces, I call it. They sort of smile and they look slightly dreamy and they know that wine and they love it. It's a, an enormous success. It's incredibly famous now. And so much of that, I think, obviously it's the quality, but it, the name is brilliant as well. How did you come up with that? Oh, it was late one night with a friend in the chapel here. We have cherubs over the altar. And um, basically, uh, we were just sitting there when I initially purchased the property. And they sort of seemed to be whispering. And that was sort of it. It sort of came up. And and um, that's how the whole thing sort of began. So uh, we came up with this name. And uh, we were in the chapel. We tried not to sort of connect too much of the dots between religion and our brand. But um, in any case, it certainly was um, an English uh, brand because even though we were in France, we should have a sort of a French name to it. But when you look at all the, anything that has to do with spirits and anything that's a successful sort of brand throughout the world, it all has a bit of a sort of English uh, name. So in any case, that's sort of how we came up with it. It was actually quite simple i don't know why but it just sort of came about yeah well the best things often are are simple aren't they um mm. i mean one of the things when i first saw uh, before i tasted it uh, that garris was uh, uh, in the uk a uh, hundred pounds a bottle retail i was <laughs> um let's say quite surprised uh, that yeah. uh, rosé could command i love rosé but i was quite surprised it could command that kind of price now i've tasted yeah. it and it is absolutely it's an exceptional wine it is absolutely beautiful but did you did you have, again, people kind of questioning your sanity when you came up with a, that sort of price point? Well, you know, there are a lot of people that I think when you, have, when you want to sort of succeed in an industry, first of all, you have to put your head down and put it into the steering wheel and just sort of keep driving. And if you have a bit of a vision quality-wise as to what you want to sort of do, and that can only come a little bit from within. And having had the chance and the fortune and the luck to have had a lot of experience and to have had the father that I had, I must say it was sort of ingrained. So I was always looking for quality taste-wise and flavor-wise. And, you know, you can add that to marketing because in our book, marketing supports sales. It doesn't create it. So to go out and spend money advertising or getting it uh, into certain certain events without having the proper distribution makes no sense. So I think we really built this the, the old-fashioned way. It's what we call grassroots. And, you know, it was um, three or four of us pulling bottle bags throughout the world and just putting it into people's mouths. So I think it had to taste well from the start. The great thing about rosé is that you you know, you can, it begins a bit white and finishes a bit red, and you can drink it before dinner, during dinner, and after dinner. And, you know, you sometimes can't do that with red wine. Red wine, at the end of the day, sometimes, um, you know, is a little bit heavy, and then makes your teeth go black, and then your lips are black, and so forth. And 
Champagne, after a while, has too many bubbles, and white wine has a bit of acidity. So we really got this product to taste the way in which we wanted to sort of drink wine, which was simply and uh, interestingly, and then something that you could drink and feel pretty well without it being too heavy or a meal in your glass. So I think New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, which I do enjoy, and French Sauvignon Blancs from Sancerre and Puy Fumé seem to have been a little bit of the trend of something crisper, something a bit lighter, uh, which was sort of coming out. So that resembles a bit of rosé as well. And that's the style of rosés that we embarked on. So the perception of the consumer is the paler, the better. The most difficult thing is to make something so pale that has so much taste is contrary to any winemaking process. So that's why technology has been so important in what we do. And you have almost neatly described my, uh, I think my favourite rosé wine, which is Rock Angel. I'll just uh, describe uh, how that particular wine, um, you know, Whispering's uh, slightly uh, more expensive, bigger sister, um, how that wine came about. Well, you know, we, we, we had uh, uh, Whispering that we kept working on and working on and you know, we buy grapes there as well. It doesn't come all of our, of, off of our estate. And um, Chateau d'Esclan, originally a chateau name at export, uh, unfortunately had lost a little bit of its glamour throughout the world. And basically, we wanted to find a super whispering. So this is what Rock Angel is, and it's 80% actually from the property, from the vines of the property. It's partially barrel fermented, which is about 35 to 40%. And the rest is tank fermented. So it has a little more depth. It has a little bit more crispiness. It has a little bit more flavor and, and lingers a little more on your palate. And uh, it just came out uh, uh, because we wanted to sort of keep lifting the category and bringing our consumers up because as you know, Rosé, and you mentioned it yourself, to pay a certain amount of uh, money for a bottle of rosé was sort of unheard of. You know, people wouldn't sort of bat an eyelash, I would say, at sort of spending a hundred pounds maybe for a great bottle of burgundy or a good bottle of red. So it's just because rosé had this cheap and cheerful connotation. So I think that, uh, no, it's, it's, it's again, you know, all about putting it into the bottle. And you mentioned the uh, extent to which the success of, um, of uh, uh, Provence Rosés is, is, is modelled uh, on champagne and the, and the tiered structure, that ladder you mentioned. And uh, now, uh, in the last uh, few weeks, we've, we've heard the news that um, uh, LVMH, uh, uh, Moet Hennessy and uh, Louis Vuitton um, have taken a, a 55% uh, stake in uh, Chateau d'Esclau. Um, that um, might um, alarm some people. I mean, uh, is it still going to be you? Are you still going to run the show? Well, I had the pleasure and the chance of meeting Mr. Arno, who came to see me. And um, I must admit that the distribution that they have throughout the world is quite phenomenal. And when you own Chateau d'Iquem and Cheval Blanc and Claude Lombre and uh, Don Perignon and so forth and so on, for us to be sold next to those great wines and for uh, 
Mr. Arno and Moet Hennessy to be interested in what we're doing sort of is the, was the next step for us of premiumization. And so as much as we had the success with Whispering, as much as we're starting to have the success with Rock, to be able to bring people up that ladder to make it sort of, let's say, uh, um, something which is respected by a Japanese sommelier in Tokyo, for us to have an extra sales force and people sort of banging the drums, I guess, or, or tooting their horns, in any case, was a tremendous help. So distribution-wise, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, Mr. Arno does have a tremendous amount of respect for entrepreneurs, and nothing here really has changed uh, since they took over, um, except for the distribution where we're distributing through many more of their subsidiaries throughout the world. So it's only been good, and we call it an alliance more than anything else. And it really has been a fantastic alliance to have the power of Moet Hennessy with sort of the entrepreneurship that we keep doing. And it speaks volumes about uh, the success of, uh, of the brand and of, uh, of Van de Provence Rosé more, more generally, I, I think. Well, too. it permits us to premiumize even better. You know, our estate has gone from 45 hectares to 145 hectares. We bought the neighbor. We're planning on doing more Garus and more Leclan and more Chateau and more Rock. Uh, whispering doesn't need help. I didn't need Moet Hennessy, you know, for the distribution of Whispering Angel, but we needed them to premiumize. So I think it was a natural step, and it's been working out admirably well. Great. I mean, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night with this nightmare that the rosé bubble will burst? No. <laughs> I do wake up in the middle of the night, but with a lot of other nightmares, but... But in any case, I, I, uh, I, at, the, at present, I don't think so, because if you look at world consumption, it's still only 15% of the wine business. So as much as it's become very important here in France, because, you know, the consumption of rosé now is bigger than white wine. Mm. So I think it's about the fact that this category, I think, is here to stay. I think it is a good product. I think it will be around for quite some time. I think it's just the beginning. You know, you look at all what's happening throughout the world. One day New Zealand is going to make its own Whispering Angel, and so will Australia, and so will Chile, and California is trying to find itself. And I think as that sort of keeps moving along, the category is going to keep growing. And I think the future is really quite good because it's, uh, you know, it's not all about Provence. Provence to rosé is a bit of what champagne is to sparkling. There's a lot of sparkling wine made throughout the world, but for some reason, a good bottle of champagne is better than any sparkling wine that's produced anywhere else in the world. And for the time being, that's what Provence sort of does. So a good Côte de Provence rosé is better than any other rosé that's produced in other places. So we're very fortunate, and the category is growing, uh, there's a limited amount of production within the Côte de Provence. There's only about a million hectoliters of wine. So at some point, you know, there's not going to be a huge amount. And maybe other people throughout the world are going to figure out what we do here because we 
don't tell everybody what we do, but in any case, it's all uh, quality driven. So, yeah, I think I think it's just going to go on for quite some time. I don't think it's a real bubble. I think there are certain people that will get weeded out that don't put the proper product in the bottle and make it too gimmicky and uh, sort of try to sort of do funny things with the packaging. But the great thing about it is that, you know, it is the only wine that comes in a clear glass bottle, maybe besides Sauterne. So when you put it on a shelf, um, it's just supposed to be pretty anyway. You can see the color of it through the clear white glass bottle. As you know, white wines come in green glass and sort of red, so you can never really see the color. So I think, I don't think it's a gimmick. I don't think it's a fad. I think it's really here to stay. I see people drinking it more and more. And maybe it's a little bit closer to a spirits drinker or a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc drinker that uses it or drinks it a little bit more as a drink. And then maybe the upper wines and the premium wines, you know, those are the ones that hit you know, the upper wine drinkers. So um, I think there's some legs to it. There's some longevity. And uh, as Mr. Arno said to me, it's just the beginning. Wow. Okay. Well, that uh, is, uh, I'm sure you're right, by the way, because uh, it's uh, just seeing the, uh, just seeing how much people love it these last few days in, in the masterclasses. It's, uh, it's got a, a great future. Just a final question. What do you drink when you're not sipping rosé? What's your favourite? What's your desert island wine? I drink some New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc before dinner. I do still drink great red burgundies uh, during dinner. I think Pinot after rosé anyway is one of the varieties that seem to sort of uh, match quite well and do the transition. Bordeaux and Cabernet sometimes get a little bit too extracted and sort of dr the dry tannins accentuate themselves after having drunk a bit of rosé. I do drink a bit of spirits. I have uh, an old classic martini every now and then and I drink a bit of rum. So I like anything that's good actually. That's a great... Uh philosophy really um uh, sasha thank you so much i know you're an extraordinarily busy man so i'm uh very, How do you do? Uh, we're honored. just in the midst of the heart we're, we're just about to start the harvest fairly soon so it's just an organizational thing because we do have a few hectares to harvest and it's been quite warm down here but it all looks sort of fairly good so i think we'll hopefully make another good vintage we're fortunate to be in this area that you know, where the sun shines a little more frequently than in Bordeaux. And in Bordeaux, it rains all the time. So most of the time, sometimes. But in any well, case, very kind to have me on board. Very happy to have spoken with you. And I hope I've edified a few people. You certainly have. Thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Drinking Hour, Sasha Lachine. All the best. Thank you. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. 
using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our first selection of IWSC medal-winning wines and spirits from the 2021 Hall of Fame. And here's some uh, that are a little bit different. Uh, we're heading to Russia for our first one, a gold medal winner, no less. Chateau Tamani Collection Madeira de Kuban Reserve 1991, made by one of the biggest wine companies in Russia, Kuban Vino, a success story for post-communist winemaking. A survivor, too, from the days when wine was made in bulk, often with imported grapes. Chateau Tamania still produces 24 million bottles. Grapes are mainly from the Taman Peninsula and they're grown on volcanic soil. The judges said, A unique and expertly integrated fortified wine that avoids being too heavy with well-judged alcohol and acidity. Boasting aromas of walnut and orange marmalade with a hint of balsamic, a gentle touch has made this a very special wine. Next, something a little more conventional, a Vermentino from Italy, a gold medal winner with 96 points. Montiori 2019 from Sella di Mosca, Vermentino di Gallura DOCG. Uh, Sardinia's only DOCG appellation, that. Uh, it's grown in the northwest of the island on granite soils, and the grape Vermentino, also known in Provence as Roll, uh, is Spanish in origin, although probably came to Sardinia via Liguria, up in the uh, northwest of Italy. Uh, the judges said, ripe pear and yellow apple with a touch of oxidative richness on the nose, combining with smoky and flinty notes, delicate citrus fruit and strong minerality. Harmonious palate with savoury richness, generous and warm, with balanced acidity and excellent concentration. And here's a silver medal winning champagne from a very familiar name, Nicholas Fiat. It's their reserve exclusive Brute NV. The house is actually a cooperative of 5,000 growers created in the 1970s when Henri Macquart set up a centre for growers to join together to get the best prices for their grapes. In 1976, Nicolas Fiat, a negociant, created a special blend to sell to friends and it was such a success that he sold the brand in 1986 to the cooperative winery. Uh, the judges said of this, a fresh and direct style with creamy elegance that manages to hold a great number of different flavours in line. Ripe peach, red apple, lemon citrus and patisserie. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. When you consider that fine food and fine wine are basically bedfellows, it's perhaps surprising how few chefs tend to talk about both together. The domain of the sommelier, usually, the wine list often appears to sit separately. How many times when the chef appears at your table to ask you what you thought of your meal, does he or she inquire as to what you drank to accompany your delicious dish? Well, no one could accuse Roger Jones of ignoring the wine side. Michelin starred for more than 12 years. His restaurant, uh, run with his wife Sue, the Harrow at Little Bedouin, was the stuff of legend for lovers of food and wine. Roger retired, well, sort of retired, early last year, except, yeah, he didn't really. Uh, the restaurant closed, but it's now a very successful weekly upmarket takeaway, and Roger seems busier than ever. Not too busy, however, I'm glad to say, to speak to us here on The Drinking Hour. Uh, Roger, hello. Thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Good morning. Lovely to speak to you. Always good to speak to you. Uh, let's go right back 
to the start uh, when you were a, a young man. Um, how did you get into cooking? Um, well, I wasn't any good at anything else. And um, I certainly wasn't going to university or, or tech as I had in those days. So um, I had to go straight into the um, coalface. And I didn't want to be a miner. So I think being a chef was the only option I had. You have this natural way with food. So did your mum and dad encourage that? I mean, we're talking about an era when perhaps blokes weren't naturally encouraged by their mothers to cook. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't myself. So was there a natural sort of intuition that you had with food? Um, yes, I think because I, I did a lot of foraging when I was younger. I didn't necessarily cook much, but my mother was a great cook as, as my grandmother was. So, as, as a man, you watched, you didn't actually cook yourself, obviously, um, but you naturally picked it up. And, and, I, and I think my parents were definitely into food. Yes, and certainly seeing, you know, live seafood. And I used to go down to the coast and pick cockles and, and mussels. I used to go uh, tickling for wild salmon, where you just go up to your uh, sort of waist in, in water and you basically put your hands underneath the water and tickle till a salmon comes into your hands and you throw over your head and then bang it up with a piece of wood and kill it. Although it's completely illegal, so don't um, try it, because that's poaching, which you shouldn't do. But back in the 60s, I think it was allowed. <laughs> so you had that rebel streak uh, right back then as, yeah. as well. Uh, you, you're sort of still a, a man of, of, of mischief these days. Um, you went on quite rapidly once you started cooking uh, to uh, doing some really highfalutin stuff. So at 21 years of age, you were running state banquets at the London Guildhall. Uh, you've cooked for the Queen, Mrs. Thatcher, Charles and Diana, President Reagan. How did you get that opportunity so young? Um, I think things were different in those days and, and age didn't really matter. And, I, I, and there was a lot of very old people in the trade. So anyone young obviously had a bit more energy and work longer hours and you know there was a, a good group of us who were all a similar age who worked very hard and got promoted very quickly and we were in the right place at the right time and when you cooked for these great names um did you ever get to meet them as well uh yes yeah, so obviously if, if you're the head chef for a state banquet you take wine with the queen um at the end of of, of the dinner now Taking wine to the Queen is not sitting down with her having a glass of wine. It's walking up the aisle of the Guild Hall up to the top table and you're handed a golden goblet and you stand 15 yards away from the Queen and you have to drink what's in the goblet. And then you have to walk backwards the full length without being tripped up by the uh, numerous people who are in the um, uh, audience or dining area. Um, and, and you can't take your eyes off the Queen till you till she puts her head down. <laughs> wow. What about Mrs. Thatcher? Did you ever meet her when you were cooking for her? Yes, she was a lovely woman. And, um, you know, we had many, many chats and um, certainly about um, my career. And she gave me a lot of advice um, about what I should do and how I should move on. And um, no, she was very good to work with. And also she was very keen to keep costs down. And so very little wastage and her and Diana were very keen to um, use less fat and less cream and butter in, in dishes. And, and between the two of them, we, we looked at changing the style of food that we were doing in those days. Wow, you were ahead of your time in, in that respect then. Uh, what was Diana like, by the way? Again, I, I didn't speak to her that often. It was just, 
you know, a, a, a smile here and there. Charles was more more, more talkative, but um, you know, we, we were doing a job, and because we were dealing with these people every day, it, it, it was no different to dealing with a normal customer. Fascinating thing to do, though, for those of us like me who are enthusiastic amateur cooks rather than chefs. Uh, very much a cook. Uh, emphasis on that word. Um, I get stressed cooking for eight. So how on earth do you handle a banquet for hundreds and still make it special? Well, it's all in the planning. So a banquet would be between 800 and 900 people. And then you'd ante rooms where you'd have 150 or 100. Well, we call them hangers on, but they were very important people who didn't quite make the main room. So it was getting everything planned. And in those days we had, because we didn't have the equipment we have now, we had staff and we had plenty of staff. If you go to these big functions, sometimes the food can be very, very good. Sometimes it can be uh, not very imaginative. What do you think is is the key uh, to cooking for vast numbers of people? Other than planning, you've mentioned that already. How do you come up with a menu that's still going to inspire? Well, one of the things that I was involved in was re-looking at where we were sourcing everything from. So I was sent the, the, the full length of Britain, looking at different meats, different fish, suppliers, and getting the very best. And I, I learned that from a very, very young age. And I think if you've got a great product, do very little with it, uh, and, and you're halfway there. And that is really underpinning your philosophy. Having eaten at the restaurant um, a, a, a couple of years ago, um, uh, it was absolutely wonderful. But um, your really, uh, you know, ingredients is uh, everything to you, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, um, if you look at, you know, great cuisine like J Japanese and all that, they do very little to it. Chefs generally just ruin, ruin food. <laughs> That's an interesting take. Um, uh, you and Sue established the Harrow at Little Bedwin in a derelict pub in 1998. Um, it uh, was a, a roaring success and it's quite a tricky place to get to. It's not on the beaten track. So it was absolutely a destination restaurant. Um, why did you want your own place? Well, we were quite happy in London because I had a, a good business in London looking after celebrities and cooking in, in nice houses and cooking in the south of France and that sort of thing. But I, I was out late one evening, as, as you know I do, and uh, I was in some club in Holland Park I met this um, developer who'd just bought a few streets down in the in the West Country, and he said he'd seen a direct pub, which was ideal for me. So I got home at three o'clock in the morning. In the morning, woke Sue up, who was at that stage eight months pregnant and had a two-year-old, so she wasn't that pleased to hear me talking <laughs> nonsense at three o'clock in the morning. Um, but the next day, as we were going through Wiltshire, we stopped. Had a look at it, um, and that was on the Friday. On the Sunday, we went back, put an offer in, and then on the Monday, we went back to London, put a house in the market at 2 p.m. and sold it at 4.30 p.m. And four weeks later, we were in the Harrow. And for those who haven't been to the restaurant uh, when it was open and who haven't had the, uh, the upmarket takeaways, tell us about the food, what, how you would define what you uh, put on the menu? Well, as, a, as we said earlier, it's, it's all about getting the finest ingredients that we can. So it's diver caught scallops from Orkney. Um, meats, we just fo follow farmers around the country, depending on the season. 
and everything from mushrooms or truffles or vegetables are all sourced from individual people. And some of these guys have been supplying me, you know, even longer than I've been at the Harrow. Um, and we rarely lost a supplier. And um, if you remember outside, we had a, an engraved slate with all our suppliers on it. And some of those had been supplying us for over 20 years. And when did you develop a professional sommelier-style interest in wine then? Um, I think certainly when we were doing the work with royalty and the government, um, there was a lot of discussion between chefs and the, the front of house team on wine matching. And we would often go into, you know, a tasting room. And this, this is, you know, early, early 80s. Uh, and we go in there and, and taste wine with food. Uh, and that was very rare in those days. And am I fair? In the introduction, I mentioned that you often find that the wine sits very separately from the, the food in terms of uh, the, the chef doesn't have a great deal to do with the wine and, and uh, the, the sommelier may not even have that much to do with the food, although I think that's uh, less common. Um, is that a fair observation, do you think? Yeah, it, it's changing and we are, you know, trying to evolve that. And, you know, I sit on the Sommelier of the Year competition and one of the reasons I was brought on was to get sommeliers more involved in food and, and speak to the chef. Uh, and and I think it happens a lot more now and um, it's getting a lot better. But certainly 10 years ago, it, it was a rare sight to see, you know, chefs and wine in the same sort of knowledge bracket. Um, but sommeliers are certainly you know, um, getting much better at um, understanding food. And it's going to be an equal partnership. You know, the food can't, can't outshine the wine and vice versa. But when they work together, it just takes the whole meal to another level, doesn't it? Well, of course, because, you know, you, nowadays going out for a meal is, isn't just about great food. You have to have the complete experience because it's not cheap and you need to, you know, price people away from watching Netflix and having their M&S ready meal with, you know, good wine and an e easy option. So to get people out, you've got to give the full experience. And the food and wine is, is you know, certainly one of them. When you talk about the full experience, uh, you were, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Michelin starred for uh, 12 years, just over that, I think. Um, Tell us how that uh, Michelin process actually works. Um, do you have to apply for it? Are you inspected, that kind of thing? No, I, in the early years, you had to fill a form in uh, to agree to all the um, principles and um, everything involved in it. I'm not sure nowadays whether you still have to do that form. Um, from what I'm aware, you, you don't. But there was a lot, lot of stuff in that that you had to adhere to. Um, but they have changed the uh, the style of the Michelin in recent years, um, which 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 is good because things move on. But yes, you're inspected, and you don't know when you are, uh, and you certainly don't know because um, they can come in twos or threes. I mean, once we had a, a table of four French people here, I should have guessed really, but um, we just thought they were from a, a local French um, car company, and at the end of it, they said they'd been sent over from France to see um, a comparative Michelin star restaurant in the UK compared to one in France. So to have four Michelin inspectors in your room um, in one go was pretty, well, it wasn't scary because we didn't know until afterwards. And they were quite pleased. So um, so that was good. Um, but yeah, it's they come once, maybe twice a year. Um, 
uh, and it's you know it's a bit like the Olympics. You get a Michelin star, and um, not only are you, um, as they say, the elders made for life, but it certainly is puts you on a pedestal because there are only 140 Michelin star chefs in the UK. I was going to say, you know, it, as I understand it, they're given to the chef uh, rather than the establishment. I think is that correct? Yeah, the chef gets it. So if a chef leaves, the star is reassessed immediately by by his if he's replaced by someone. But generally, the star will go. But the chef can't take it with him. So the chef gets the star for the food that he provided at that venue. Of course, if he can do the same in the next venue he goes to, he will be allocated a star. But um, again, this is only my interpretation of of, of the um, star. And we have to be very careful how we speak about the Michelin and to keep to their uh, legal terms. Yes, and you are always very careful about that uh, as well. Um, you spoke very honestly and, and very graciously, actually, to the buyer just after you lost the Michelin star. Um, that must have been a, a very tough time for you after 12 years. Yes, it was. And I think, you know, um, if I was honest, I. I probably took my eye off the ball because I had so much other things on and I, at that stage I set up two of my own wine competitions, the Mamba Awards and the Tri-Nations. I was involved in judging not only the sommeliers, the numerous other um, World Wine Awards and I was also doing a lot of work um, for charity and um, I think the seven day week, 120 hour we, we're probably pushing it too much. You've bounced back and found a whole new market with uh, Takeaway. Just tell us about that. Well, we, we were retiring anyway. That that was um, always being planned. So we decided in December 2019 to retire in March 2020, which we, which we didn't know about COVID then. But obviously then when we did close, we, we did see there was a need for people who, who especially older people in those days who couldn't leave home and obviously couldn't go out shopping and it was a nightmare for people. Um, so we thought we could do a free takeaway service for anyone in the area within a 10 mile radius who required food. And um, that's what we did. And we were doing hundreds and hundreds a day. And it was, um, it was good fun actually. It was because it was, it was a different style of, well, not quite different because we, we turned up in some places but obviously we had to be at a safe distance, but no masks in those days, in the early days. But you know, there's some people we were going to who'd never eaten a strawberry in their life. Uh, and certainly we couldn't give them lobster or monkfish. So we had to balance what we gave people and do you know, cleaner food and more homely dishes. You created some incredible stuff. I mean, it, it looked from the pictures at the time, I remember thinking this is like heaven's Meals on Wheels, really. Um, it was an extraordinary service. Um, did you get a lot out of that, the feeling of, of providing those, those free meals at that time of, of great anxiety and crisis? I think more than anything else was talking to these people because they were lonely. They were scared because at that stage, you know, no one knew what was happening. And they were just sat at home, you know, in, in, in just being miserable. And us popping in, you know, every other day was, was, you know, just to see their smile was enough. Well, it was a brilliant thing to do. And from that, uh, you have developed this uh, 
yeah, upmarket uh, takeaway option on a Friday. I, I see the pictures on on Instagram. It, it, it's it looks just so delicious. Um, this has turned out to be, um, uh, uh, you know, a, even if it came about uh, by chance, a, a masterstroke, really, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I. Well, Sue would definitely want to retire, um, but I wasn't quite ready to give up the cooking. But um, yes, it, it's. It's only the two of us doing it now. Uh, she's chief bottle washer and everything else, and packaging, and, and I do all the food. So the first time ever, we're working together, just the two of us. And it's, um, it's odd, um, in the 18 months we've been doing it, we've not had one argument, which is uh, rather interesting, where, um, you know, for 21 years, I'm sure we had daily arguments while running the restaurant, but that was the pressure of running, you know, a Michelin-style restaurant. You have an amazing double act with Sue. Um, anyone who ever came to uh, the restaurant, you were back in the kitchen. Uh, Sue was running uh, front of house. But uh, it's uh, an incredible team dynamic. Um, it really must put an enormous amount of pressure on a relationship when you've also got uh, you had young children, uh, they're grown up now. Um, it, it's, it's a real sort of pressure cooker environment running a, a smallish restaurant, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think he, well, um, being married and working with your wife full time is, 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 is pressure as it is. But then put that into a, a kitchen, small, independent restaurant situation, it, it is very, very hard. And yes, that you know, we, we would often need time out. Um, but for us, you know, we, we, we obviously had our family, but, you know, the, the restaurant was our baby as well. And um, we had a vision for it from the start to be, you know, exact everything we wanted from a restaurant. And um, certainly in the early years, we had a, a great success with the press and, and everything else. And, you know, we were very lucky um, along the road. And wine certainly became very important to us because uh, through through the wine side, we got to meet some fabulous uh, wine people, uh, um, which brought more customers to the restaurant. And how did you go about uh, building that formidable wine cellar at the Harrow? Because it uh, wasn't really focused on the, if you like, the classic expensive first growths and the like. It was a, a slightly different cellar in that respect, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a, a small independent restaurant, we didn't have the money to invest in first growth. We'd loved Australian wines for some for some years, um, and we were quite knowledgeable in Australian wines. And I think one of the reasons we were because um, my French and German is, is is nil, but Australian wine is in English, so that was quite easy to understand. So to develop Australia as we did, and we went to visit Australia three or four times in the first few years we were in the Harrow. And we very quickly got to speak to winemakers and got to understand what they were doing. And we were always ahead of the game with what to buy and everything else. And we started, you know, working directly with these guys. And it, it you know, we became famous for Australia to begin with, and then New Zealand, and re more recently, in the last ten years at South Africa. You have a almost encyclopedic knowledge of uh, those uh, uh, countries, Australia, New Zealand and, and South Africa. Um, I've uh, you know, judged alongside you and I've been on, on, on trips with you, although not alas to those countries uh, yet. Um, you have also um, been doing it long enough to have seen the wine 
evolve in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, haven't you? Yes, I mean, there's been a huge amount of changes and, and you know, people still talk about, you know, ABC and this book Chardonnay, but I've always said, you know, absolute brilliant Chardonnay. But, but people must have to remember, it was, you know, 20 years ago, that, or, or even longer, 30 years ago, that we were drinking big oak Chardonnays. It all changed many moons ago, but, you know, sadly, some of the press keep going on about, you know, that. And um, the, the, the quality you get now from, from Chardonnay from the New World is, is exceptional. Uh, but it has changed. So as, you know, Burgundy and uh, everything changes to people's taste and it's, it's mirrored by food. So as we get, we eat lighter food, we, we look at lighter wines. And if you look in history as, you know, 30 years ago, we were eating a lot more food with cream and butters and everything else in it. And we were drinking wines with more alcohol and heavier flavors where now everything is becoming cleaner and more focused. You are an evangelist for the right glassware, for the right wine as well. Um, tell me uh, why you're so interested in glassware. Well, like many people, I just fell in love with, well, it was Riedel I fell in love with because they turned up one day and said, try this wine in four different glasses. And that was it. We never looked back. And that, that was 24 years ago. And, um, you know, it, it's so, there's lots of other companies doing it now. But it, it also, for a restaurant, it's just the whole effect. And it just gives that extra dimension. And um, Riedel, for us, were very, they became partners in that they were showcasing their new glassware um, in our restaurant, which is great for us. And sales of um, Riedel to the retail side increased hugely. And one of the things they did in, in every country, they picked two or three restaurants to highlight their glasses, and that just increased sales of um, take-home uh, glasses. It is pretty incredible uh, tasting the same wine in um, a, a different glass, the difference it makes, isn't it? It is, yes. Uh, and, but I think more than that, some, sometimes, you know, you eat with your, your eyes and you also drink with your eyes because if you see something in a nice, incredible glass, you're already saying, well, that's going to be good. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it'll make a bad wine great, but it, it will enhance a great wine. Talking of great wine, uh, you judge for a number of major wine competitions, including the IWSC, who are sponsors of this programme. Um, how do you judge a wine? What are you looking for? Well, it, it, judging a wine is not, um, it's not looking for my favourite wine. You've got to get that out of your, 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 your mind because you're not there to judge for yourself. You're there to judge for, for the competition. So you have to look at wines on how it should taste like or how it should be. So obviously, as you know, if, if we're judging a singular variety, for example, Pinotage, on a day, I would study that, you know, for a few days beforehand. If we were judging Australia or English sparkling, you know, I'd go and look at what's new there and what, what we should be expecting and speak to winemakers and look at what, what's happening there. So it's not as easy as just going, oh, that's nice, I'll give it nine out of ten. It's it, does that taste like, you know, a Pinot Gris should taste like, and is it correct? Does it give, you know, for the, the if we're given the price, for that price, is it worthy of a medal? And how important are these wine competitions? 
Oh, hugely for the winemakers. Absolutely huge. Because, it, you know, it, a bit like the Michelin, it, it can make or break you. It certainly make you. It may not break you, but it it's certainly can, you know, encourage sales and get you on the map. And what about uh, sommelier? Because you mentioned that you judge sommelier of the year. So what are you looking for in a good song? Well, honestly, re- really, they've got to be honest. And it's not about... You know, I do get upset when people start upselling. What we want sommeliers to do is to enhance the experience, not just to think about pushing another 20% on the, on the bottle of wine. It's about clear understanding of what the customer wants and does the customer want interaction? If he does, fair play. If he doesn't, just keep away from them. So they have to, you know, work out very quickly what the customer wants or needs. But But, you know, importantly... They're there to enhance the experience. Um, and sometimes it will cost a bit more money. If It's not about, if someone's asked for a Chardonnay, it's not, you know, don't go and start selling an orange wine to them. But you could, you know, offer them, um, you know, a Pinot Blanc, or um, a moves slightly sideways. Um, and, get, get you know, we, we, we don't understand straight away what the customer's knowledge is. You know, they may think that, you know, Sauvignon Blanc only comes from New Zealand and doesn't come from the Loire. So you have to treat people, you know, until you get to understand them more uh, um, very nicely and then try and help them through the um, experience. It's a really interesting observation, actually, because I tend to think about sommelier for uh, knowledge. But what you're talking about here is emotional intelligence, actually, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. If they wanted a degree in wine wine information, it's... um, sign up for a course. And I judged with you at the IWSC this year, and we had um, uh, a couple of days of judging English and Welsh wines, and there was a remarkable flight where I think we gave, we were dealing with vintage, but I think we gave six golds in a single flight. You have been um, on the bandwagon for English and Welsh wine for a while now, haven't you? That must have been a, a, a great moment that flight yeah i mean i remember you know i can't 15 18 years ago you know being very polite trying english wines um now we don't need to be polite because they are absolutely amazing wines and that experience we had that day is is, will become more common but it was certainly rare you know for both of us to see such quality i know when we've and i've only recently uh, found out the names of, of those um, sparkling wines, you know, they're very small, um, and with three of them were unknown to me. Um, so it's showing how how much is happening in the UK and how well we are moving along, which is brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, I did the same, by the way, when I got to find their identities. Um, yes, at, at least two or three were unknown to me too, and they were, uh, you know, fantastic uh, wines. Um, do you have uh, a favourite wine? I think that's very difficult because, you know, you, people might say, oh, well, because he's got such a great seller, he's, he can have whatever he wants. I was blown away in recent years by, you know, Muscadet, uh, and that certainly has made a great comeback. You know, good value wine and just delivers perfectly. Um, but I think favourite wine would be uh, Vina Tendonia. And I remember going there about 20 years ago for, for a... A visit we'd allow two hours two days later we were still there we stayed the night with Maria Jose and it became um, not only her 
one of her agents in the UK, I became uh, her brand ambassador for many years. And having a 1957 white Venus um was mind-blowing back in those days. And what about food? Uh, do you have a kind of, um, if you were on, uh, you know, the old death row final meal type thing, maybe uh, if Sue has finally had enough, uh, then yeah. what would be your uh, dish of choice? Well, hopefully my death row would be by the sea, so it would have to be shellfish. Nor Northern Spain, any of those um, rare um, shellfish they have up there, uh, everything from goose barnacles to the, the red prawns, to you know the uh, all the different clams and things um it's just a an amazing place to to go and eat great shellfish well let's uh, hope you end up uh, there then just finally something that uh, i didn't know about you before i was doing my homework you're in the guinness book of records yeah yeah that was uh, a mad thing i did about 11 years ago when i was 50. um 50 of us tied together did the london marathon and um we were called the centipede and um, we didn't know, well, we didn't know each other. Uh, you may have known one person in, in the group. We trained for, for four months for it and, um, and got the world record, uh, which was, I think we only held it for uh, three months until it was broken in the Paris. <laughs> uh, but, was, you know, we were in the book and that was uh, done that, ticked a box. <laughs> Well, you've ticked quite a few boxes, so uh, let's um, hope you carry on um, doing that. It's um, always great to uh, natter to you, uh, to be led astray late at night on a press trip, as has happened on uh, uh, more occasions than I, I care to mention. Uh, it's great to chat to you uh, on the drinking hour, though. Um, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us, Roger. Thank you, David. It must be the first time I've ever talked to you without a drink. I think it is, yeah. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. There's just time for our final trio of IWSC medal winners from the 2021 Hall of Fame. Let's start in the Languedoc with a silver medal winning wine from a real pioneer of that region, Chateau Paul Mass. Clos de Mure 2019, a blend of Grenache, Syrah and Carignan from one of the original estates of Domaine Paul Mass. The company was started in 1892 when Auguste Mass bought a nine hectare piece of land near Montignac. Uh, the company now has a little bit more than that, 800 hectares. And owner Jean-Claude Mass is seen as the pioneer of a new Languedoc style, a hugely charismatic guy. Uh, the judges said of this wine, pronounced oaky nose, punctuated by notes of vanilla, followed by a full-bodied palate of ripe black fruit and a soft, broad finish. And that wine is available in Waitrose. Next, it's to California and a silver medal winner, Black Stallion Estate, Pinot Noir 2019 from Los Carneros. Situated at the foot of the Silverado Trail in Napa, the major riding centre is still there. And what was once the riding school is now the winery. Uh, the judges said of this wine, an expressive nose with floral and spice overtones, an elegant and well-structured palate with crunchy red berries and zippy acidity. And finally, to Navarra in Spain, uh, Le Naturel 2020 from 
Aroa Bodegas. It's a Garnacha Blanca and it won silver with 94 points. Good score, just one shy of a gold medal. As the name suggests, this winery was designed around natural principles with minimum intervention. It's a gravity-fed winery with hand-picked grapes, no added sulfites, and there's uh, minimal intervention in the winemaking process. Uh, the judges said, ripe with multi-layered aromas of yellow grapefruit, lemon verbena, tart tatin, and raw almond. Bruised apple and caramelized pastry come through beautifully on the palate, complex and masterfully balanced. And that's imported by uh, Vindependence. Uh, so you'll find that in uh, specialist independent uh, wine shops and no doubt on a few restaurant wine lists too. Uh, and we should all be supporting both of those categories. So that's it for the drinking hour on Food FM for this week. Thank you very much indeed uh, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to uh, both of my fantastic guests this week, Sasha Lachine and Roger Jones. Um, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and on Twitter. And you can follow me. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And if you enjoyed it and you're asked to rate it on iTunes, then do please give us a nice five star rating. That would be very lovely of you. Um, thank you very much for listening and look forward to seeing you next time. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.